Hi, and welcome to the Driving Force Podcast. I'm your host, Chase Rosa, a former private equity analyst turned endurance athlete. In this podcast, I'll be interviewing world-class competitors in the sports and business worlds and have them share their perspectives on what it takes to remain driven with all that life throws at you. My guest today is none other than my dad, Michael Rosa. My dad's the former president and CEO of Pacer Electronics, a wire and cable distribution company he sold to Annexter International in 1998, and I believe Annexter is now nearly a $3.5 billion uh, market cap company. And my dad is also probably the most competitive person I know. My dad's placed second in Kumite in the Karate World Championships, finished five Boston Marathons, one Ironman, and is currently preparing for the World Yoga Championships after finishing second in the National Championships last year. Ladies and gentlemen, my interview with my dad, Michael Rosa. Dad, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. I hope <laughs> I'm not the kiss of death. <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, yeah, so how was, how was surfing today? It was good. It wasn't as good as it usually is in Barbados, but I always have fun in the water. <laughs> yeah, my dad's also a pretty avid surfer, too. You'll see him in the water with, uh, you know, the average age out in the water will be 25, and he's he's 68, so... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so anyway, um this podcast is centered around, you know, unveiling the driving force behind each of my guests and I think a large part of what's behind a person's drive stems from what stuck from childhood and adolescence. Um you didn't have it particularly easy growing up, did you? Looking looking back, no. When I was actually growing up, I didn't realize um it was pretty much of a nightmare. Um, I went to a Catholic school. Um, you may hear some stuff, actually, that you haven't heard before, so just gird yourself. Um, <laughs> I was abused by priests and nuns when I was growing up in the Catholic school. Um, I worked seven days a week as a newspaper boy, and at the end of every week... Um, the people who ran the, the distribution outfit for the newspaper would steal all my tips from me. Unbeknownst to me, I thought I was just not doing the math correctly. But after a while, it became apparent that mm-hmm. they were stealing from me. Right. Um, I'm the eldest of nine children. Um, every time I looked up, pretty much, there was a new sibling in the house. And we, um, so I kind of just grew up on my own mm-hmm. and and, um, and you were um or you are um significantly older than the second oldest is that right no actually we came nine children within probably 15 years we had not, my mom and dad had all the nine children my the second sibling is actually uh 13 months younger than i am okay yeah okay and was it um, I guess how hard was it on your parents to to raise nine nine children? I can't even begin to fathom. It's it's incomprehensible to me. Um, I don't know how they did it. I know why they did it. Um, that was the way of the world back then. They were both Roman Catholics. There was no contraception, no birth control allowed in the Catholic Church, and my neighborhood was full of five, six, seven. Ten children families. Mm-hmm. So again, it seems extraordinary now. It was the norm then, right? Yeah. And how how old were you when you were um, 
I guess, in Catholic school and getting abused by the uh, I was, um, nuns and the priests. I was in third grade, so I was eight years old mm-hmm. when it started. And have you seen the movie, um, God, what's the name of it? I want to say... Um, Spotlight. Spotlight, yeah. Yeah, I've seen it. It was um, it was tough to sit through. Mm-hmm. And um, they did a good job. Yeah. But it was, for me, it was difficult to sit there and watch it. And, you know, it definitely brought back some memories that I cared not to relive. Mm-hmm. But um, life goes on. Yeah, right. Any other jobs like... Um, the newspaper delivery job that you had growing up that you just absolutely hated but just had to do? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, in high school, I I made donuts after school um, at night from 5 to midnight. Six nights a week, I made donuts in a, a hot, grease-filled, sugar-filled, just horrible environment. Um, I made thousands of donuts every night <laughs> and it was a horrible job horrible um, I also sold hot dogs at Fenway Park way back when and made the hot dogs at Fenway Park as well um, I didn't care for that job too much as well mm-hmm. um, so I knew I didn't know then but I know now that doing that type of absolutely garbage work that I didn't want to end up doing that type of work for the rest of my life, and I'd do whatever it took to make to make some money. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, those were two probably the worst jobs I had. Yeah. What was uh, I guess? What was your escape growing up? You know, when you had the time outside of those jobs, was it working out? Was it music? Was it something else? It was pretty much all of those things. Um, I used to run quite a bit. Um, from as long as I can remember, I could run long distances and escape. Mm-hmm. I'd also work out and lift weights, um, ride my bicycle forever, surf when I could. Um, a lot of it, yeah, it was physical activity. I did like my music. Unfortunately, my parents did not. So me being able to play the type of music I liked was really not happening mm-hmm. actually my dad one time actually come up into my room and threw the record player out the window <laughs> yeah I had Jimi Hendrix on actually and um, he wanted me to turn it down and we had a little disagreement about the volume and out the window it went <laughs> and that, that reminds me you you were able to see Jimi Hendrix live, right? Cause he yes, went to a couple of times, actually. I saw him at Woodstock, and I saw him at the Boston Garden with a band called the Band of Gypsies. Mm-hmm. Good good shows, both of them. Real good shows. What was, what, what was Woodstock like? I mean, there are so many you know, yeah, stories put, of uh, all sorts put, of things. They portrayed it like it... Um, like it was for the most part in the movie. It was a great experience and something that I think they actually tried to redo, relive this this, this year, actually. Well, this past year, 2019, the 50th anniversary. Um, I don't believe they pulled it off. They couldn't have pulled, they couldn't have pulled it off anyway. It was a once-in-a-lifetime unique yeah. event. Um, 
extraordinary music, extraordinary people. Um, to put a gathering like that together these days with no violence and killings and anything else is, again, once in a lifetime. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so I guess let's fast forward to college now. Yeah. Uh, you transferred a couple times, right? I did. I started at Boston College right out of high school. Um, I went to the School of Management, they called it back then, just because I had no idea what I wanted to do with myself, and it was just kind of like the next logical progression just to keep going to school. I lasted a year and a half there. Um, that was during the Vietnam era, and we actually closed the school down um, with an anti-war demonstration the second semester of my sophomore year. They closed the school down. It was in probably April for the rest of the year and just gave everybody credit for <laughs> wow. the rest of that year. Yeah. And was it, um, I guess, how much of the school was a part of that demonstration? Was it, it must have been pretty substantial. It was substantial, but we basically wouldn't let students in and out of the building our teachers, so they didn't have a choice. You were part of it? Yeah, I was part of it. I'm not proud of it, but yeah, I was part of it. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, most definitely part of it. And then um, that summer, um, I left. I left the United States with three of my friends because I didn't understand the war in Vietnam and I wasn't going to fight and kill for something I did not understand then. And I don't even understand it now, why exactly we were there. So we went to Australia to um, avoid getting drafted. Wow. Um, stayed there for about a year. Um, worked in a health food store. Well, that's another job I hated, actually. I grated carrots from <laughs> 3 in the morning till 7 in the morning. Every, every morning I grated carrots and did nothing else but grated carrots. It was a Seventh-day Adventist business right in downtown Sydney. Um, I'd get out, you know, right after the lunch hour, and then I'd surf till dark. And I had literally no money. No money at all. And you went to, did you study down there? I studied for about three weeks. I went to a naturopathic school right in Sydney. Um, and I, I preferred to surf, so I did. <laughs> um, I was basically living on handouts from um, various fruit stands. From We lived in Bondi Beach to Sydney, and, and there were fruit stands all up and down from, from various families who emigrated to Australia. And the women who ran these stands, I think they'd feel sorry for me. So they would give me free fruit, vegetables, or give me for literally a nickel enough food to feed me for the day and that's how I lasted over there I ate a lot of cantaloupe so much cantaloupe in fact that when I did get back home they took me to the doctors right away because the palms of my hands and my face were orange <laughs> from too much carotene from the cantaloupe wow that's how much cantaloupe I ate it must have been pretty good. It was really know. good. They were, they were the size of basketballs, and I basically would pay a penny for them. Mm -hmm. But again, that was, God, almost 50 years ago. Bondi Beach was was a slum area back then. 
I haven't been back since, but I hear it's uh, uh, pretty expensive to live there now. Yeah. Back then it cost us, again, pretty much nothing. Wow. And was this, was this about the time when you started to go vegan? I did, actually, when I got home. I, um, I saw a documentary and, and read a lot of nutrition books and decided I wasn't going to kill any more animals. So I went vegetarian back then, then vegan, and I eventually ended up living on brown rice because that that diet back then, and diet in quotation marks, but the diet that I followed was a, supposedly the pinnacle of the macrobiotic diet back then, brown rice and water. So since I had no money... Um, I ate brown rice and water for months. Um, and I got sick. Yeah. I got sick. Um, I learned how to make brown rice in many different forms. So, like I tell you, at some point I even put raw, raw rice kernels in a frying pan with nothing else and would pop them like popcorn. And then I would eat that for dinner. And it was like chewing BBs. <laughs> I'm surprised I have any teeth left. But I was so bored with boiling the rice, and I I had to I had to do something to vary it. So I popped it. Yeah. So how it's long? Insanity. <laughs> so how how long did this diet in quotation marks last? Um, I probably lasted three or four months, and um, I like I said, I lost, I got sick. I ha I got actually developed an eating disorder. Um, my parents came to my where I was staying back then in Seabrook, New Hampshire. Uh, found me passed out on my couch. Um, couldn't get me up. Basically, took me to the hospital. They did my blood work and so on, and basically told my parents that they didn't understand how I was still alive because I was such a mess. Um, I'm about 5'9", weigh 155, same height back then. Um, they took me away and weighed me. I was 95 pounds in wow. the hospital. 95. Yeah. So I ended up at McLean Hospital in Cambridge. And uh, after a day or so of pumping me full of fluids and so on, my parents come in and talk to me and said, you know, they wanted to put me in a psych psychiatric hospital to get me better and of course I told them there's no freaking way I was going I wasn't going so talk about something else doctors come in basically said fed me the same baloney you know and, and I was like you can't make me go and unbeknownst to me they could because I guess if you were a danger to yourself back then they could actually um, put you in an institution Again, I, I was adamant I wasn't going. So a couple hours after the last doctor came in, these two, I call them gorillas. They must have been 6'4", 250 each. Picked me up, put me in a straitjacket, threw me on a stretcher. Off I went to McLean Hospital, and they put me in a padded room. Wow. Can't make this stuff up. Like you see in the movies. Yeah, no, it was, it was, I was like, it was surreal. 
Yeah. I was freaking out. They wouldn't let me make a phone call. They wouldn't let me do anything. They just I was in a padded room. Um ninety eight pounds probably then after all the fluids were replaced, um trying to claw my way out mm-hmm. to no avail. Spent the summer there. Jeez. Escaped a few times. <laughs> they always caught me and my roommate. Um the actual therapy that they did was useless because I was having none of it. None of it. Mm-hmm. So eventually, after daily begging my mom and dad to get me out of there, they they took me home and um, started trying to fatten me up. Um, really didn't work that well, but eventually I um, I pulled through it. But it was, it was tough sledding. Yeah, real tough sledding. So it was, it was pretty much solely brown rice. Were you, I guess, were there like multivitamins that you would take to help get any or sort of other nutrients, or was the only nutrients that you were getting that was from it. the brown rice? That was it. I had, like I said, I had no money back then, and I didn't want to ask my parents for it. Um, so I couldn't really afford anything quite different from what I do now, as you know. Um, but yeah, I had no supplements whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Wow. And and during, while I was doing that, I would like, I would go for long runs still. I could do 10 miler, like cracking sticks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I even ran around the courtyard at the, the um, psychiatric hospital, much to the chagrin of the therapist. But... They thought I would collapse. Little did they know. <laughs> <laughs> and you mentioned you had a roommate in the psychiatric yeah. hospital. What was, I guess, his situation? His situation was he was a drug addict. And he was a son of a, from what I understand, a very famous cardiologist out of New York City. And they didn't know what to do with him. So back then, from what I understood, again, a lot of rich uh, well-off families would send their problem children to McLean Hospital mm-hmm. and try to get them well, or just try to get them out of their hair, or a combination of the, the two. Wow. It was, um, again, not something I want to repeat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. Okay, so going back to college, um, where did you eventually graduate? I eventually graduated from Boston College. I um I went nights and weekends um while I was working. And we had just started the um electronics business. So I started college in nineteen seventy uh sorry, sixty nine, ended up getting my undergraduate degree in nineteen seventy eight. And so Okay, so you graduate. Do you go straight to working for your dad? I was working for him. Oh, you were? As, yeah, that's right. As I was in mm-hmm. school mm-hmm. during this, trying to finish up, like I said, night school and weekends, I was working. Okay. Yeah. What um? What was the first job that you held? At, like, what was at your job? Pacer? Yeah. I did. I was a warehouse shipper, receiver, truck driver, swept the floors, cleaned the toilets. Um, made made deliveries. I mm-hmm. was the lowest guy on the totem pole, 
easily and did that probably three or four years I was in the warehouse respooling wire doing whatever they needed done and it wasn't um I wasn't really qualified to do anything else and looking back it was it was the perfect launching pad because I could relate to every job um, that needed to be done at that electronics distribution company every job because I did every job mm-hmm. so I understood what it took I understood what it didn't take I understood what type of work could get accomplished and what type of people I needed to do it and since distribution was strictly a people business um, the one compliment I'll give myself is I was able to hire good people and keep good people and that made the business what was the inspiration for your dad to start it in the first he place? Had, he had started an electronics um, distribution company selling components like resistors, capacitors, and stuff like that way back when. And he, his customers would use wire and cable and always ask him, you know, can you get me this wire? Can you get me that wire? Um... And eventually he sold the component business to Harvey Electronics and started Pacer Electronics. And we started Pacer Electronics, I'll never forget it. My father took me to a big empty warehouse with a pile of wire, just like literally looked like it came off a dump truck. It was just all piled in a big pile in the middle of the warehouse. No description, no nothing basically says this is our inventory we're going into the wire business <laughs> and I was like what and um, we had to go through every single spool of wire and there was probably thousands of them find out what kind of wire it was mic it out and identify it and put it on the shelf and that was how we launched our inventory um, yeah my dad was pretty much a a genius when it came to business mm-hmm. he really was um, he hired me <laughs> uh, so I guess how many years until you became president how many um, I was into it for probably 15 years because mm-hmm. I worked said from the warehouse to customer service to inside sales and purchasing to sales manager, uh, vice president, president. And um, my dad stepped aside and I became president and CEO and stayed that way right through the sale to Annexter. Uh, selling wire and cable, you know, regardless whether it's in person or over the phone, doesn't sound like it would be very fun. Was it, it was, um, no, I, I, I mean, it wasn't fun for me anyway. Um, I had really no interest in it, but I, I needed to make a living. Um, and I always had in the back of my mind that if I could do really well, I could retire early. So I worked like an animal for like 28 years. Um, your mother can attest to the fact that we 
had to cut, cancel a lot of vacations. I had to come home from a few vacations. I basically came home from the airport a couple of times. Um, it was a stressful situation for me. Um, mostly because I was learning as I went. I didn't really, I didn't learn anything in, in college about actually running a business. Everything I know about business I learned in the trenches. Yeah. Um, and it was baptism by fire, but again, the best way to learn is, is hands-on, doing real-life stuff, and that was real life. We got very busy very quickly, and we were fortunate, and um, worked really hard, though. We worked, we all worked really hard, and I, again, I had some really good people, and there was family there, of course, um, and they were some of my best employees. Unfortunately, I probably treated them worse than any of my other employees, trying to make sure that it didn't look like they were getting favoritism. But in hindsight, I definitely did not treat them the way they deserved to be treated. But it was family, and they stuck by me, and, and the business was the ultimate success story. And how many of your siblings went into the business? Was it, was it every single one? No. Um, maybe a handful. Maybe four or five of them actually worked real hard at it. A couple of came and went for various reasons, but let's say five of us all together were fully involved. What were, what were some of the biggest challenges, um, I guess, involved with having so much of, I guess, having a family business in general? Um, again, it was um, people feeling that everything was handed to the family members and not even knowing anything about any of us, basically just assuming that we had the life of Riley and everything was gifted to us and we didn't have to work as hard as anybody else. And But it was the exact opposite. Mm -hmm. um, everybody in the family worked really, really hard, did a really good job. Um, one thing about a family business, there are some... You know, there's some family dynamics that go on, but you know you can always count on family. When, no matter what, when it comes right down to it, you know you can depend on them. And, um, yeah. And we couldn't. Like I said, we went from zero to when we sold the company, we had $50 million in revenue, about 115 employees, and we were making 10% bottom line. And that was unheard of. So we got a good, we ran a good business, we ran a tight ship, and um, we knew when it was time to get out. Mm -hmm. Right. I was done. Anyway, I was cooked and bored. <laughs> and, but you kept very, you know, even though it was so busy, you kept, you know, very active while you're running Pacer. Oh, yeah. I um, had to. I had to. It was a stress release. I was up every morning, 4.35 a.m. I'd either be out running, and my runs were not runs around the block. It was a minimum 10 miles, minimum. Really not healthy, but even if I wasn't running, I was in my weight room, and if there was surf, I was surfing. But every single day, I, and 
before I did all this, I had a stretching routine that I that I put together that I do religiously, 365 days a year. That was done, no matter what else was was done. And I would try to get to work um, after having a workout because if for some reason I couldn't get that workout in before work, usually I'd take it out on my employees and they'd know it. And they'd just kind of, it was literally like, the parting of the Red Sea when I would walk down the <laughs> they were just like scatter when the word got out that I was not in a good mood. Did they know what? Did they know it was they because? Eventually, he, yeah, yeah, they knew. Yeah. You know, they had a they had a saying. What did he have? Uh, raw meat for breakfast or something like that. But they knew. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, they knew I. I didn't get I didn't get my run in or I didn't get my surf in or whatever. I had to get out of the water early and the waves were really, you know, cranking. But so I had to take it out on something. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, and you, but you also encourage your employees to embrace exercise during the I day, did. right? I did for their lunch hours. Um, I would I would absolutely let them leave a bit early, come in, come back a bit late. And if they were going to the gym, I knew that I would get an employee who was much more focused, energized, um, and productive when they got back. So yeah, I let them, I let them have a little free reign. You know, some of my middle managers didn't really care for that, but I knew that it was good for the bottom line and it was good for for my employees. And eventually. Even the the ones who used to squawk about not having an iron fist around their subordinates would realize that they were better off letting these people go out and get some exercise instead of coming back with a full belly and all the blood in their stomachs and you know basically half half dead at their desks. So yeah, I totally encouraged it, mm-hmm. and it and it was paid off and. Um, and that was way before they had in-house gyms at, at all these companies now, and pay. You know, that was way not in vogue back then. Yeah. Not even close. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What I guess what was the inspiration for I guess starting that I guess program for lack of a better word? Because I, I could see what it it helped me significantly again mm-hmm. with stress reduction and so on, and a couple of employees. Um, Asked if they could do it, and I was like, "Yeah, go, go for it." And then there's one more, you know. Others would think, "Well, this is a good way to get a few minutes extra lunchtime or whatever," thinking mm-hmm. they're pulling one over on me. <laughs> but whatever, you know what? I was happy. I was happy to let them go. And eventually, God, I probably had a dozen people out at a time at lunch going to the gym, or a lot of the people in the warehouse would go into the to the parking lot and play basketball or street hockey or volleyball or, or anything. So everybody from the shippers and receivers to the the inside salespeople to even outside salespeople, everybody um, got some sort of exercise for the most part. And the ones that didn't, we tried to encourage it. Mm-hmm. Um, we just, and that that probably increased overall employee morale at the company too. Oh, I would sure. imagine for sure, absolutely. Um, they, you know, the, the camaraderie, you know, in the street hockey games or going to the gym and 
um, working out with each other. Yeah, they all became they became close friends. Not only during work hours, but a lot of them ended up hanging out with each other, you know, on the weekends and at nights and so on. So, not true family, but eventually it was like one big family. Yeah, we were fortunate. We were fortunate. How many employees did you have um, at Pacer? And uh, when I sold it, it was about 115. Okay. And that was at the the acme of our success. You know, we we got to a certain point, and um, I I sat down with my dad, and we 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 talked about it, and we knew that we couldn't really grow anymore organically in that area we would have to do acquisitions and that meant going back into debt and we were debt free at that point and um, and honestly like I said I wasn't interested anymore I had 28 years into it and um, I was ready to cash in mm-hmm. you know, a lot of people say they have regrets when they sell their companies I never had one never and to this day I still don't we made a good deal at the right time and um, and it was time. Yeah. So, and that's where you came into contact with Summit Partners, private yeah, equity firm. Summit Partners. Yeah, yeah. I um, yeah. We originally sold eighty percent of our business to Summit, and they came with the uh, in with the idea that we were going to go out and acquire businesses and go public. Well, we I traveled with them around the country. We looked at a handful of different wire and cable distributors. And um, I couldn't recommend any of them to, to Summit Partners. I didn't feel they were operating correctly or well-run or um, the cultures just didn't match. Um, and so after about a year with Summit, we decided, though, well, this isn't going to work, so let's see if there's any takers. Yeah. Because they were a true venture firm. They wanted to get in and out within three years. And so we stopped put it, putting out some feelers, and Annexter was the biggest competitor. They did the same thing we did, only on a global scale back then. I think when we sold the business, they were about, Two and a half billion, maybe. I think they're about seven billion now, but I'm not positive. But anyway, um, it was a good deal for us. They got rid of a competitor. Yeah. I stayed on for a few years until I couldn't take the nonsense anymore, and um, <laughs> and I and I retired. Yeah. yeah. What was the feeling like for you the day you signed the papers for you know, Pacer to be acquired? It was. I was exuberant. I was very happy about it. Like I said, no no second guessing. Um, no regrets. Um, we we had a good deal and all my employees had had stable jobs and had opportunity with a worldwide company where they could go a lot further in the company than I ever could have offered them as a private company. Way more opportunities were open to them. So, a lot of them didn't think so back then, but again, in in hindsight, they, they'd have to see that, you know, a, a family-run business with 50 million in revenue just can't offer the same 
opportunities for advancement that a multi-billion dollar worldwide company can. So there was just no arguing that. Yep. No matter how much there was, there was, you know, crying and gnashing of teeth with some of the employees just wanted to keep everything the way it was. But like I said, I was, I was kind of burnt out and I was, I was bored and I didn't want to do it anymore. And my dad was ready. Um, so we did it. Do you know, do you know how significantly Annixter changed the culture of the company when they bought it? At first, I stayed on for a couple of years. So they tried to change the com- the culture of Pacer into more of the culture of Annixter for the time I was there. And we were continually butting heads, me and, and the Annixter corporate, so much so that I got called to Chicago on probably a handful of occasions and basically said, you know, Michael, we bought you so we could do this, this, and this. Well, I said, if you do that, that, and that, you know what? You're going to mess up my organization and you paid all that money for nothing. So you can either listen to me or, or not. And then they brought in another manager who they thought was the second coming and me and him <laughs> did not get along at all. And... um so again, I flew to Chicago and told the CEO of Annister back then that I'm not working for this guy. He's a fraud. And he goes, well, Michael, you know, you can't say that. I'm telling you, Bob was the CEO's name. I said, Bob, he's a fraud and you're going to find it out. So I'm not going to work for him. Um, and he's, I'll give him a year and a half with you at most. Well, he has a two-year deal. And I said, well, I think you're going to, I think you're going to break, just buy out his contract then because he's a fraud. And sure enough, probably a year, 14 months maybe after I left, they fired the guy. And, and I could have cared less. It was a good excuse to, to just quit and raise my kids and go to their tennis matches and annoy them. <laughs> That's true. That's very true. Um, okay. And now, I guess transitioning away from from Pacer now um, and into karate. So when did you start doing karate? I started karate in my late 40s. Um, how I got there is actually is is through you. I had taken, I had always had a avid interest in karate from even in high school, um, but just never, never got around to, to actually getting to a dojo and trying to study it. You turned four, I think it was, and I took you up to the local dojo. Sensei basically said you were too young back then. And um, I said, well, you know what, I'm going to do it then. And so that's what brought me to the dojo in the first place. Um, and I loved it. I didn't know I would. Mm-hmm. I loved it. I was there pretty much seven days a week. Wow. Um Doing kata, I love the kumite, which is for those who don't know, is the the, the fighting aspect of karate. We did a style called weche ru, which is a very uh, hard Okinawan style, and um, we did local competitions, regional competitions, and one world world competition. And I loved I loved the competition because it got me out of my comfort zone. 
Plus, I, I got to punch people in the face and, <laughs> <laughs> and not be punished for it. Right. And the reason it's called a hard, a hard, or one of the hard styles of karate is partly due to some of the conditioning? Yeah, the conditioning was definitely um, probably not the most healthy thing for anybody, but yeah, we would pound arms, kick each other with our shins on, on our thighs and so on. Um, yeah, it was brutal. It was brutal, but it was supposed to toughen your forearms and your legs and so on. So, and your in your stomach. So, if you took a punch, you wouldn't feel it. I always thought there was a better way. Just don't get hit. But <laughs> what do I know? <laughs> Did you think it helped at all? The conditioning. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a form of discipline. Um, did it actually help? Not. No, not in competition, definitely not. Um, and in a street fight, I would say no. It, it didn't help me anyway. Um, yeah. And, and the, a lot of styles, and, and my current sensei, Sensei Fagan, has literally no use for for the conditioning part of karate, and he's probably the best karate guy in the world, as far as I'm concerned, he is. Yeah. Yeah, yeah for sure. Um, and we'll... I'll need to get Sensei Fagan on the podcast as well. Yeah, you should. That'll be a good one. Yeah, he's an interesting character. Okay, and I guess here's a question for you. With the increasing popularity of the UFC, and therefore martial arts like Jiu-Jitsu and Muay Thai, karate has arguably decreased in popularity relative to other martial arts, um, with some people calling it a joke for self-defense and calling the learning of katas useless. I guess, what do you have to say to those people in that statement? I would say to those people that they should really actually study karate for what it is and learn about it. I would say those people don't know what they're talking about. Um, I know some karate guys who absolutely are the toughest, um, best fighters in the world, no matter no matter who they were up against, they'd take them apart. Um, uh, to disrespect karate like that, I mean, that's where all these other styles basically evolved from karate. So for them to say that karate is, is useless in, in self-defense, I mean, that is, its origins were from people trying to defend themselves. So it's, it's utter nonsense to answer your question. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think for one, there's there's no possible way that one martial art is going to have all the answers for all your self-defense needs. Also. No, definitely not. Definitely not. But biased as I am, I'd, in hindsight and being exposed, I've, I've been exposed to jiu-jitsu, um, Muay Thai, um, other, other styles of karate, and... Um, I would, I would absolutely, if I had to pick one, I'd, I'd, I'd do karate. Why? Um, because I think it's, it's effective. It's very effective in, in for self-defense and in some of the offensive techniques. Um, good self-discipline. Even the katas, they, they get ingrained in your head and you can do the movements and just get lost in the flow and it's 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 good stress relief and like I said and you feel you feel confident 
in your abilities so that you don't you don't get in fights. Mm-hmm. You know, never get most quote unquote tough guys are guys that are always trying to prove themselves, so they're always trying to start fights, and they get their heads handed to them by anybody who was a skilled fighter, karate especially. Mm-hmm. They get absolutely just detonated. Yeah. Would you say for someone maybe looking to start karate, would you say it's more important to think about which style of karate you want to train or the school and the instructor that you're going to? I think it's definitely the instructor makes all the difference in the world. It did for me. I've, I've been fortunate to have a couple of really good ones um, and been exposed to dozens and dozens of senseis from all different styles and um, I was just absolutely lucky to, to land with the, the tube that I landed with. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I'll find a good teacher. Yeah. Find a good teacher. I would agree with that as well. What year did you go to the World Championships? I think it was 2000. It was in Atlanta, Georgia and there were, I think they said 32 countries represented. And I was only a brown belt, actually, when I actually competed back then. And I was intimidated, to say the least, because everybody there was pretty much... In my divisions were black belts or senseis who come from their own dojos and were there. And But I was there with Sensei Fagan um, and Sensei Perry, who was my first sensei. And actually a couple other guys that you know and um, once I got my first fight out of the way I was good yes because I beat a guy from Texas who had a Sandan in Wichiru actually from Texas he had his own dojo and I beat him in my first match and um, I was like well my sensei said I could do it and then I knew I could do it so I made it. I made it to the finals. Um, got my rib broken in the semifinals, and it was from a Brazilian guy. And there was another Brazilian guy in the final, and they they knew that I had a broken rib, and they did exactly what they needed to do. Mm-hmm. Um, I had to protect my rib, and I was getting popped in the face. And if I tried to protect my face, I was getting hit in the ribs even. And it just, I didn't win. They they. They were good fighters. Um, yeah. On any on a given day, maybe I could have, but not. My rib was gone. It was gone. Yeah, that's one thing I didn't really know about. Uh, I guess kumite and karate tournaments is that you can get pretty. Although it is point fighting, you it can get can. pretty. You can get pretty seriously hurt. Yeah, you can. Testosterone sometimes gets out of control. Um, the actual control of your opponent sometimes isn't what it should be. Um, I fought a guy once who definitely, not at the Worlds, but at, at a AAU championship up in New Hampshire, who definitely, I was beating him pretty badly. I think it was two points to nothing, and, and I was beating him pretty good. And he absolutely came, and he he tried to break my rib. And, the fight got stopped there and, and I was hurting um, but yeah some like I said testosterone gets in the way ego gets in the way and um, 
yeah, things happen. Yeah. They shouldn't, but they, they definitely do. There's no denying it. I've broken pretty much every toe I have, both thumbs, my rib like probably three or four times. My nose has been broken probably a handful of times as well. So yeah, it happens. <laughs> yeah. And nowadays you're training for the World Yoga Championship? I am. Believe it or not, there is competitive yoga. And it's very similar to doing a, a kata in karate or a, maybe a floor exercise routine in gymnastics. We have three minutes to do six poses and we're judged on execution and difficulty of the poses. And there's some world-class athletes that are doing this stuff. How long would a routine last of poses? Um, You have to hold the pose for a minimum of five seconds to be scored the full amount of points you can be scored. Okay. Um, so it's a minimum five seconds. Okay. And again, the whole routine um, has to be done in three minutes. And anything that isn't done within those three minutes doesn't count towards your point total. And what division are you competing in? Uh, men's, uh, they call, um, I think if they call it adult over 50 basically they're trying to not call us seniors but it's 50 and over <laughs> it's 50 and over yeah yeah so it, it's you know I have 18 19 years on some of these the guys that are coming into the division but gets me out of my comfort zone and um, we'll see what happens yeah that's cool I think you'd appreciate this statement from a guy named Nick Gregoriades. He's a uh, pretty well-known Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu black belt who said that yoga is a martial art that you do against yourself. Yeah, um, I can appreciate that. And yeah, it's it's definitely a battle between keeping calm and keeping within yourself and wanting to push yourself to the to the nth degree at the same time. So, yeah, it's a, it's a struggle. It's a fight. Um, and I, re- I really think it's something everybody should get to experience. It's it's very, very healthy exercise. And meet some really nice people and don't break a lot of bones. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, w- I, would, uh, I would agree with that. Is... Is it something you wish you started a long time ago? Um, you know what? Probably. Um, that's a tough. That's a tough one for me to answer because if I started it a long time ago, I probably would have replaced it with something else by now. Um, I was fortunate to get exposed to it when I did. Um, Save my body from a lot of the other stuff that I did. That was a lot of wear and tear on my body. Um, so no, I'm, I'm, I don't wish I had started it earlier. I'm, I'm, I'm happy with where I am, with whom I'm studying with, um, with all the, the talented yoga people that I've been exposed to, and um, yeah, it's been it's been really. Literally a lifesaver. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
that being said, you would say it's definitely beneficial for people of all ages too. For sure. Yeah. For sure. I mean, I've exposed my children to it. That <laughs> says it all. Yeah. Yep. So what's kept you driven for so long? Is it the prospect of potentially being a world champion in something? Is it the constant desire to want to prove yourself? Is it something else? I mean, it's both of those for sure. I think that the intensity, I've been called intense on on many occasions, and, and I don't really see it in myself, but I do, <laughs> I do believe that the human, the human potential, both physically and mentally, has, is so untapped. And, you know, I, I can't do it for anybody else, but I can, I know that within myself, that there's always another level I can get to, and I just can't rest until I, until I see how far I can go. So no matter what it is, I, um, I think there's a lot of opportunity within myself that hasn't been exploited and I hate wasting opportunities and again I want to be an example to my children knowing that you know I'm basically a no talent bum and I was able to accomplish <laughs> quite a bit and anybody can do pretty much whatever they want to do if they really want to do it if they really want to do it it's in you and you can do it and if it comes easy, know it's going to go easy. So just keep that thought in mind. You know, easy come, easy go. Yeah. And that leads into uh, my next and uh, final question. What piece of advice would you like to leave the people listening who want to accomplish these you know, big goals they set for themselves? Lose you know, X amount of weight, run a marathon, or whatever else you can think of, um, but can't seem to stick to it over time. Have faith in yourself. Know that you can. Know that you can because you can. Mm -hmm. um, like I like I just said, at the risk of, of being repetitive, um, there's a lot. There's a lot inside the human potential that just is not being mined, and and I think a lot of it is, you know, this some money driven stuff from the drug companies and so on. Like when people get sick and. You know, they can sell a lot of medicine, and but just keep at it. No, knowing that just the effort to to go after your goals is a, is is an accomplishment in itself, and you'll look back and you'll be a better person if you stick with it. So yeah, go after it. Yeah, well, I think uh, that's a good place to stop, and I think we can wrap this up. Dad, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me, Chase. Um, like I said, I hope um, hope people enjoy this and realize that it, you know, your podcast can only get better from here. <laughs> <laughs> right. All right. Th thanks to everyone who's listening, and uh, I'll see you next time.